was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. So this issue of Jewish ceremonial washing prompts a question in their minds. They think, hang on, we thought John was the A-list celebrity around here. He's our man. He was getting the big crowds, but now he's not. And so they come to John and they say, John, you're going to be yesterday's man before too long. What are you going to do about it? It's a bit like a journalist might interview the reigning champion. And uh, the setting is that the up-and-coming star has been sweeping aside all her opponents in the warm-up tournaments. And it's only a matter of time before she takes the number one spot for herself. And so the journalist asks the reigning champion, what are you going to do about this? If you don't act now, you'll be yesterday's news. Well, John answers his disciples and he teaches us our first lesson. Disciples who see the greatness of Jesus joyfully make way for him. Disciples who see the greatness of Jesus joyfully make way for him. Verse 27. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You see, John knows that absolutely everything is a gift of God from heaven. Paul says the same thing to the Corinthians. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? James writes, every good and perfect gift is from above. John knows this general truth, and yet he applies it to himself. He's, he's saying, God has given me the task of pointing other people to Jesus. And now that Jesus is here, my work is nearly done. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. You see, John's disciples are, are concerned that John's reputation is taking a nosedive, but they don't really understand what John is here for. And so that's why John tells them this little story about um, a best man at a wedding. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. Well, in those days, the bridegroom's friends didn't just write a witty speech. He organized the whole wedding. Reminds me of a time when I was a best man, and, and I ended up basically organizing the whole thing because the, the groom was just so disorganized. Well, imagine how ridiculous it would be if the, if the best man's friends, sorry, the bridegroom's friends, was so resentful and jealous when, the, when his friend finally arrives to marry his, his bride. Or consider uh, if the best man today had a tantrum in the church because he wasn't the center of attention. Someone would quickly tell him to shut up and get a grip. It's not about you. That's what John is saying to his disciples. He's saying, it's not about me. It's about him. And so he feels absolutely no resentment, but only joy. He says, that joy is mine, and it's now complete. John is like the best man who has spent months and months pouring himself into the wedding preparations. Everything he's done has been shaped around that all-consuming objective of bringing bridegroom and bride together. And now he's absolutely delighted to step aside for Jesus. He's satisfied. He's fulfilled. He's content because he's done the ministry God gave him to do. All of, which knows he, all of which means he, he knows how to respond. Verse 30. He must become greater. 
I must become less. Now, I was intrigued to discover as I studied this passage this week that that's the third time John has written must in this chapter. Do you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? You must be born again. And then he said, I must be lifted up. In other words, I must die on a cross to deal with death. Those, if you like, are kind of gospel musts, things that must happen. But this is also a gospel must. It must happen. If we see the greatness of Jesus, we must do what John did. Disciples who see the greatness of Jesus joyfully make way for him. Do you remember I mentioned George Whitfield a couple of weeks ago? He said, Madam, you must be born again. Well, he, he lived his life by those first two gospel musts, but he also lived his life by this third one. He once wrote, Let the name of Whitfield perish so long as Christ is exalted. Let the name of Whitfield perish. He made way for Jesus. Um, we've got some books just for sale at the back um, by the writer Tim Keller. And uh, I was reminded of this brilliant little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Uh, just one pound. I encourage you to pick one up. Naturally, Keller says that our ego, our sense of self, is damaged and broken. Whether we have an overinflated or a deflated of opinion of ourselves, there's something wrong deep inside. And that means that our ego hurts. And to prove that point, he quotes that very well-known theologian, Madonna. Madonna is talking about her career in an interview in Vogue magazine. She says this, My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one, human sp one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Keller says that Madonna isn't being neurotic. She actually knows herself much better than most of us do. She's being honest. Now, our lives probably don't look like Madonna's life on the outside, but our hearts are the same on the inside. Instinctively, we spend our days comparing ourselves to others, whether subconsciously or consciously. We find a sense of worth by, by how great we feel we are. But there's no joy in that, is there? no permanent lasting joy in spending our time comparing ourselves with one another trying to figure out how great we are but if we become disciples of Jesus if we see the incomparable greatness of Jesus then we'll do what John did we'll joyfully make way for him where will we do that well maybe we'll do that at church whether we're welcoming or on Sunday school or in music or leading a home group or doing some sort of unnoticed hidden job behind the scenes, we'll know that every good gift we have comes from God. He gives us the gifts. He gives us the opportunities to serve him. And if we've seen the greatness of Jesus, we won't do those things thinking of ourselves more as an attempt to, to, to make ourselves just a little bit greater. No, we'll think of ourselves less. Not thinking less of ourselves, but think of ourselves less and we'll joyfully make way for Jesus. That same attitude will change Monday to Saturday as well. Everything we've got, whether it's our career or our family or our friendships or our leisure or our community, everything we've got is a gift from God in heaven. Every part of our lives is an opportunity to serve him. So whether we succeed or fail, it doesn't matter. It's not about us. 
It's about him. And finally, that lesson transforms our our ministry, our personal evangelism or our, our ministry as a church. Because we're all friends of the bridegroom, aren't we? We're all pointing people to Jesus. And so when we're sharing our faith with one another, it's good to say, hey, Jesus has changed my life like this. It's good to have answers to common questions people might have about our faith. And it's good in a beautiful building like this to run all sorts of interesting and exciting ministries. But most importantly of all, it's, it, it's vital that we don't point people to ourselves, but we point people to him. We tell our friends how great he is, not how great we are. And so whether we succeed or fail in a ministry we put on in this building, or in a conversation we have with a friend, doesn't matter. Because disciples who see the greatness of Jesus joyfully make way for him. But doesn't all that go against the way we're wired? It's just so unnatural, isn't it? In, in the workplace, we said, push yourself to the top of the career ladder. If you're on social media, it's, it's all about developing your social media platform. If, if it's in the community, maybe it's about getting in with the in crowd. If it's in church, maybe it's this desire that, that we become the church that everyone else is talking about. How can we really learn to say, he must become greater? I or we must become less. Well, I think that is why John explains these things in more detail in verses 31 to 36. Because he wants to convince us about Jesus' greatness in a profound and great way. So secondly, disciples who see the greatness of Jesus accept his words as the very words of God. Accept his words as the very words of God. Verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he's seen and heard. Now, it's sometimes hard to reach a verdict in court until a key witness has spoken. I wonder if you've ever had that experience. Maybe you've been on jury services. It's been pretty unclear. And then one particular witness speaks, and you know. All the doubt is dispelled in a moment because of that piece of evidence. Well, that's the picture John is describing here. John the Baptist presented his evidence, but he was just an earthling, just an ordinary human being, just from the earth. Jesus, on the other hand, is, is the only reliable witness to heavenly realities. And yet, here's the shock, verse 32. No one accepts his testimony. It's just what we saw last week, do you remember? People loved darkness instead of light. The word of God came from heaven to tell us about heaven and how to get there, but many, many people didn't listen. It's a bleak picture. Humanity rejecting the one witness who's got critical evidence about heaven. But John, as he often does, does paints a, a dark picture in order to set up a contrast with the light. Verse 33. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. Now I think this verse comes as quite a surprise. Because we might have expected John to say, whoever has accepted Jesus' testimony has certified that Jesus is truthful. That's what happens usually, isn't it? Imagine a courtroom. You hear a witness speak, 
the witness gives their testimony and you say, I recognize that that witness is telling the truth. But John says that whoever believes Jesus actually believes God. Or to put it another way around, if we don't believe Jesus, then we don't believe God. John writes this elsewhere. He says, if we reject the testimony of God's only son, then we make God out to be a liar. Sometimes it's hard, isn't it, to tell if you're being lied to. We pick up clues in the conversation. We listen to other people speak on the same subject. We, ass we assess the character of the person who's talking to us. How can we tell that God tells the truth? Well, here's the surprise. God tells the truth. And we can know that for certain because he has entrusted his own credibility to the credibility of his son. We can tell that God tells the truth because Jesus speaks. Verse 34. For the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God, the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Now, the Father has, has given absolutely everything to Jesus. That's what verse 35 is talking about. He's made Jesus King of kings and Lord of lords. He's, everything is, belongs to Jesus. But here's the most extraordinary gift he's given to Jesus. Verse 34, his own spirit, without limit. In the past, God gave his spirit to his prophets so they could speak his words to his people. But he only ever gave the spirit for a time and in part. Now John says the Father gives the Spirit to the Son without limit. What does that mean? Well, John the Baptist saw a picture of that. Do you remember the baptism of Jesus? John says, I saw the, the Spirit of God descend like a dove and remain on him. So the Spirit stays with Jesus. God gave the, but the gift of the Spirit to the Son wasn't a gift given in one particular moment of time was an eternal gift. I, I discovered this week, maybe I'm way behind the game, but on Twitter there's a trend, how it started, how it's going. I don't know if you've seen that. It's like two pictures side by side showing how a news story has developed or how a celebrity began their journey or how a personal story is going right now. Now I saw a great one the other day. It was this famous icon by Andrei Rublev depicting the relationships at the heart of God. I'm not a big one for icons, but I really like this one. It points us to the unchanging, eternal relationship of love between Father, Son, and Spirit. From eternity past, the Father has selflessly given the Son, the Spirit to the Son. There is no separation in God. There are no secrets. There's only true, perfect, eternal communication. And you notice Rublev painted that icon with a space at the table. It's a reminder that God invites us to join him. When, when Jesus speaks, God speaks. When we hear Jesus' voice, we hear the Father's voice. When we listen and respond to Jesus, we share in that eternal relationship of love and truth between Father, Son, and Spirit. That's not about hearing an audible voice in our ears when, when we open up the Bible, but it's about hearing him speak when we, when we look at the Bible. Later on in John's Gospel, Jesus says about the Old Testament, these are the scriptures that testify about me. 
when he prepared to say goodbye to his disciples, he said, the spirit of truth will come and guide you into all truth so that when they wrote the New Testament, we can be confident that this is Jesus' word. If you're a parent, you might have this, this uh, children's Bible at home. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the subtitle is brilliant. It says, every story whispers his name. It's actually even better than that, you know. Because from the Old Testament, spoken by the prophets, to the New Testament, written by the apostles, the, the, the Bible doesn't just whisper Jesus' name. The whole Bible is full of Jesus' voice. He speaks through it. God gives Jesus the Spirit without limit. When Jesus speaks, we hear the very words of God. Now, doesn't that make Jesus incomparably great? In a world full of lies and half-truths, shouldn't that make us think, I want to listen to him? Shouldn't that extraordinary truth that the words of Jesus are the very words of God make us think, I want to open up this book because I want to hear him. Disciples who see the greatness of Jesus accept his words as the very words of God. Well, our passage ends with a verse that seems to come a little bit out of the blue, but it's actually a fitting conclusion to the whole chapter. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. You remember, the chapter began with Nicodemus trying to figure out if Jesus was the Messiah. But then Jesus turns the tables on him and says, Nicodemus, are you ready for the kingdom of God? And then remember how John described how God sent Jesus into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. And recall how we saw that we've all got a choice. We can come into Jesus' light or we can hide in our own darkness. The whole chapter has been helping us to see that Jesus is incomparably great. So, of course, the way we respond to him will have great, profound, eternal consequences. There's a, there's a dark irony in that, that verse, verse 36. John saw the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of God remain on Jesus. It's a picture of eternal intimacy that the Father enjoys with the Son. But uh, verse 36 says that God's wrath will remain on the person who rejects the Son. It's a picture of the, the dreadful, eternal judgment that we deserve against, uh, from God because we've rejected his great son. How else could eternity be anything else if we've rejected the one who speaks the very words of God? But if we see the greatness of the son, if we believe in him, if we accept his words, then the future is full of hope. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Notice it doesn't say will have eternal life one day when you die. Has eternal life today. That means if you believe in the Son today, you are enjoying eternal life today. Yes, it will be even better one day, but this is eternal life today if you have the Son. May we be a church full of disciples who see the incomparable and awesome greatness of Jesus. Because disciples who see the greatness of Jesus joyfully make way for him. And disciples who see the greatness of Jesus accept his words 
at the very worst.